Meaty Beans, the best synthetic supplemental protein source for the post-apocalyptic wasteland. Is it meat? Are they beans? I don't know. I'm not paid to ask questions. Formulated from the best genetically modified amino acid chains and wrapped in a shell of lab-grown cellulose, you will think that you're eating real food. Try Meaty Beans today. Mmm, meat? You're listening to the Esoteric News Briefs, your source for the paranormal, the mysterious, and the strange. Welcome back, goblins! I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric News Briefs, episode 3.2, When Your Web Browser Becomes a Sentient AI. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive. Specifically, Annie K, Kylie H, Soul Rising Studios, and Grand Inquisitor Samantha. If you would like to join the ranks of the Archivists, go to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. All members get early access to shows, and those pledging $3 or more get extended book club episodes. Anyone posting at the $8 level gets a shout-out by name in future episodes, along with a warm, tingly sensation that oftentimes precedes the emergence of the Kraken. If you would like to make a one-time donation, you can follow the PayPal link in the show notes, and I'll give you a shout-out on the following episode. But enough of all that, you're here for the weird stuff, so let's get started. A group of international geneticists have been studying the evolutionary rate of a series of animals over the past 60-odd years. What they found was quite astonishing. It is suggested that evolution, at least on a genetic level, is accelerating. The study looked at the superb fairy wren, song sparrow, spotted hyena, red deer, and 15 other species. While the length of study varied by species, the results showed a similar pattern. With constant environmental change, aka climate change, species variance is increasing. What does that mean? We're not about to see a new color of bird, or bipedalism in large cats, but with each new generation, there is a wider range of variation from the parent to their offspring. More variations means more opportunity for change within a population. Essentially, evolution is trying out a bunch of new genetic combinations just to see what works best given new environmental conditions. The biggest concern is that with the accelerating rate of climate change, not all species will be able to adapt. And honestly, that's normal. Not all species can adapt to new living conditions. Where they leave a void, another species will evolve to fill the vacant niche. The only reason there is added emphasis in this situation is because human influence is speeding up environmental change, giving species a shorter amount of time in which to evolve. Then again, maybe it's encouraging it. I know that overhunting has classically been blamed for the extinction of Ice Age megafauna, and humans certainly didn't help their longevity. But these mammalian titans were already on their way out the door. The world was getting hotter, and glaciers were retreating. The environmental conditions necessary for mammoths, woolly rhinos, and saber-toothed cats was disappearing. 
fast. But their vacancy left space for new species to evolve. It seems like we are seeing something similar with this study. The big difference is that for the first time, we are able to view these changes on a genetic level. While we're in the midst of the sixth extinction, which is a pretty good book if you haven't already read it, I'm confident that nature will persevere. The big question at this point is, will we? Since we're already talking about increasing global temperatures, let's take a look at a place that's being hit especially hard right now. Mosul, Iraq. One way to deal with water shortages is to build a reservoir, which they did in the 80s. Only now it is consistently so hot and rainfall so minimal that the reservoir has dried up, which is terrible for those who rely on the water. On the plus side, the reservoir was preserving a Bronze Age archaeological site known as Commune. This isn't some small village either. This site contains a palace, towers, fortifications, an industrial complex, and a multi-level storage building similar to a warehouse. It's been established that the city fell during an earthquake in 1350 BC. The same earthquake covered the remaining ruins in a layer of protective sediment. This sediment further protected the ruins from erosion when the reservoir was constructed and filled in. I think the wildest find so far is a bunch of sealed ceramic jars that contained unfired clay tablets with cuneiform inscriptions. These were basically reusable notepads of the Bronze Age. When you were done with your notes, you simply added water to the clay and reformed it into a new blank tablet shape. If you had notes that needed to be preserved, you could fire it in a kiln and turn it into ceramic. But these tablets were simply dried and unfired. Fortunately, the storage jars were well sealed and then covered in debris from the earthquake. Otherwise, these tablets would be nondescript sludge in the bottom of these vessels after the reservoir water was introduced. Luckily for Mosul, the reservoir has been refilled. The archaeological site has also been covered and reburied in order to preserve it until the next time this area is faced with a drought. While I hope they don't get hit with such a devastating heat wave anytime soon, I do look forward to what they may next find and commune. The National Aeronautical and Space Administration is now consulting with the U.S. government's Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group which I still think is a terrible name. Commonly known as the UAP Task Force, this group was legally formed to research unidentified incursions into United States airspace. NASA is serving as a consulting agency due to its unique perspective on aerial phenomena. A NASA spokesperson said it is, quote, evaluating how to provide our expertise in space-based Earth observations to improve understanding of unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs, and has consulted with multiple government entities, end quote. The source added that NASA's work will complement the Department of Defense's UAP task force, charged by Congress with investigating the threats posed by strange objects in U.S. airspace and beyond. It is unspecified what government entities NASA has previously consulted with. 
NASA also denies that it is establishing its own UAP task force. Recently, a volunteer archaeologist at Vindolanda, a Roman fortification south of Hadrian's Wall, made a rather hilarious discovery. Dylan Herbert, a retired Welsh biochemist, had been volunteering at the site for two weeks. Every day for two weeks, he had tripped over the same rock, and he finally asked the site coordinator if he could just move it. From its location, it appeared to be a regular stone, but when Herbert flipped it over, he noticed a rather detailed carving. Engraved into the stone with surprisingly deep lines, apparently the carver wanted to make sure that they got their point across, were the words Secundinus Cacor and an enormous phallus. Now, we're not talking about Renaissance-era artistry here. We're looking at something that you might see scrawled on a bathroom stall at a local dive bar. Except with deep, deep lines. It seems that it was created to be recognizable from quite a distance. And the words? Well, let this be a lesson to not upset a stonemason. This mason immortalized his hatred, not just with the illustration, but with the epithet Secundinus the Shitter. I'm not sure what Secundinus did to this guy, but 1700 years later, this mason is still getting his revenge. Apparently drawing dicks on things was a hobby, even in 300 AD. Volunteers have excavated only a quarter of the ruins, and already they've spotted 13 carved in various locations. And these are just the ones carved in stone. It's hard to estimate how many were likely carved into wood or plaster surfaces at Vendolanda. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Am I right? I also want to take a moment to appreciate the name of this article's author, Harry Baker. Yep, I'm childish but I also just read an article about ancient dick graffiti. Alright, get out your tinfoil hats and stock up on your meaty beans, because according to Alberto Cabero, there could be four hostile alien civilizations just in our Milky Way. Caballero is a doctoral student in conflict resolution at the University of Vigo in Spain. He has written a paper that extrapolates invasion possibility based on human militarism. Wait a minute. If we're wanting to know how likely we are to be invaded, why are we looking at human militarism? Well, to be short, it's basically because human civilization is the only set of parameters that we can use, short of just completely making stuff up. Now what this guy did is rather fascinating. He looked at the total number of countries in the world, which came to fewer than 200. That seems like a shockingly small number to me. And he compared that number to the number of invasions that took place between the years 1915 and 2022. Why did he start at 1915? I have no idea. It really wasn't explained in the article. So when you compare the number of countries to the number of invasions, you get a probability. What Caballero then did is that he applied it to the number of likely inhabited planets in the Milky Way. Beyond that, he reduced this number of inhabited planets based on whether or not they were a level 1 civilization on the Kardashev scale. A level 1 civilization means that they have interstellar travel. 
For those interested, the Earth is barely a level zero planet on this scale. Now this calculation came back with the result of 0.22, less than one hostile level one planet in the Milky Way. Whew, I think we're safe. But wait. Caballero also looked at the possibility that there could be species out there who would be hostile to humanity if they possessed interstellar travel. And that number jumped up to a whopping 4.42. So four and a half planets in the entirety of the Milky Way would be openly hostile towards planet Earth. And currently, none of them are likely to have the means to even get to us. This research paper has yet to be peer-reviewed, but for now, this should provide you a little relief from the existential dread of alien invasion. Why don't we have megafauna? Sure, we have elephants and hippos. Heck, even moose are pretty massive, but we really don't have anything monstrous like dinosaurs. Why not? Paleobiologist Greg Erickson explains. First, giant saurians like dinosaurs were constantly growing and regrowing their teeth throughout their lives. This allowed them a bit more adaptability based on their food sources. For example, theropods, the grouping that T. rex belongs to, began life with needle-like teeth that eventually gave way to something akin to serrated steak knives. Bigger weapons equals bigger prey. Bigger prey means a surplus of food. It also appears that dinosaur respiratory systems were directly tied to their bones, allowing them to easily oxygenate these structures. It makes them lighter, while still retaining their strength, allowing them to expand to a massive scale. Mammals don't have the physical capability to develop these internal air pockets, so it seems like elephant size may be the limit for maximum mammalian size. There is also the question of how dinosaurs thermoregulated. While many scientists believe that predatory dinosaurs were likely warm-blooded, it seems like larger herbivores were more towards the border of warm and cold-bloodedness. This would give them the luxury of a lower caloric intake, which, let's face it, would be difficult for some of these massive sauropods with their tiny, tiny heads. An example cited in this article says that an elephant scaled up to the size of a sauropod would need five times more food than a dinosaur of equivalent size. We also have to consider the environment. Massive creatures require massive habitats, far greater quantities of oxygen than we have today, and enough plant material to fuel them. An indicator of oxygen density in the fossil record comes from the giganticism of insect life. Thankfully, we don't have dragonflies the size of biplanes today, but that is more thanks to a lower oxygen density than anything else. Because we see colossal insects during the age of dinosaurs, it indicates that they enjoyed more oxygen than we do today. One of the last factors we must take into consideration is time. Dinosaurs had millions of years to develop into the behemoths that we excavate today. Mammals haven't really had that luxury. Sure, they took precedence after the asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs, but then we had an ice age, in which the mammalian megafauna was really starting to come into its own. And then suddenly the climate shifted. 
every adaptation that helped these species achieve massive size now worked against them. While these animals were struggling from the weather, a new species, hominids, was picking off the young and weak using pack hunting tactics. These vicious little creatures were able to acquire massive amounts of food, but instead of developing giganticism, they grew more brain mass. As they grew more intelligent, they became more deadly. These primates may not have single-handedly wiped out entire species, but they didn't help any either. So, why don't we have kaiju-sized monstrosities today? It's a combination of biology, geology, climate change, and, well, us. Next, I have a follow-up to an article from last month. Remember how I talked about asteroids and meteorites possibly carrying DNA pieces and that these pieces may have been responsible for all of life on Earth? I mentioned at the end of the article that both American and Japanese scientists were working towards examining asteroids in space in order to limit the amount of possible terrestrial contamination. Japan has received back samples from its Hayabusa 2 spacecraft that landed on the near-Earth asteroid named Ryugu. This astral rock is more than 200 million miles from terra firma, so I'd say that it's pretty well isolated from earthly contaminants. Now, Ryugu isn't a single object, but a collection of stones that are so rich in organic carbon that it only reflects 2-3% of all light that hits its surface. So what did Hayabusa find? It seems that Ryugu housed amino acids. Quite a few amino acids, actually. Currently, Japan has confirmed 20 different types of amino acids, various nitrogen compounds, and compounds similar to petroleum. And that's pretty astounding. And while the Ryugu samples are being studied, NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft is returning to Earth with samples that it collected from asteroid Bennu. It should return in 2023, so we'll have to wait a bit to get further analysis. To conclude the show, I have three articles that are not necessarily related, but share a similar theme. First, a Japanese scientist has come up with a way to grow living tissue on robotic parts. Because, of course, this came from Japan. In the experiment, they began with a mechanical finger, coated it in a layer of collagen and dermal fibroblast cells, and then covered this base layer in epidermal cells. Basically, they created a tissue layer and then dunked it in a tank of living cells that adhered to it and grew upon this layer. In the photos, it kinda looks like a finger, but without a fingernail. The scientists say that this is the first step to move beyond the uncanny valley, that sweet spot between real and unreal that causes existential dread. If you ask me, they're not quite there yet. Granted, this material doesn't last long outside its tank, since it doesn't really have a water supply to keep it supple, nor does it have nerves. Those are the next goals for this team. They want to create a subdermal lubrication network and form some mechanism for sensory input. 
These scientists are claiming that this line of research is to help humans better relate to robots and AI. But I predict that it's more likely to end up going towards something a bit more perverse. Then again, maybe I'm being influenced by the photo of this robot finger, which is neon pink and kind of veiny. To start this next article, I want you to listen to something. It probably won't make too much sense, but I'll get into the details about it afterwards. Now, let's listen to that one more time. That clip probably sounds like a language, but likely not one that you can identify. And there's a good reason for that. That language technically isn't real. So what exactly is going on here? The above phrase came from an AI language software named DAL-E2, and it outputs an image of birds eating bugs. At least, that's how DAL-E interprets it. What's weird is that even though it sounds like gibberish, it may actually be assembling words based on information from non-English sources. For example, some of its results sound like Latin, and thus also sound similar to a handful of Romance languages. This means that DAL-E doesn't necessarily have its own language, but it is developing its own vocabulary. The article's author proposes that this is happening because of tokenization, which is a way that software divides a phrase into individual words, each of which is known as a token. These tokens, taken individually, can sometimes have conflicting meanings when taken out of context. For example, when I say match, do you think of a tool used to start a fire, a pairing of like items, or a tennis game? By itself, it's hard to say. That's why context matters. So when a computer learning software divides up everything into a token, it accidentally creates gibberish. Even more so when these tokens are divided into sound groupings rather than full words. What's weird is that you can take these phrases that DAL-E outputs from an image, feed it back into the system, and get the original image back. It seems that the program is building a memory bank of images associated with sounds, much in the same way that babies learn a language. Then again, without a parent to fix the mispronunciations, the program will assume that it is saying everything correctly and add those words to its lexicon. So is Dolly 2 creating its own secret language? Well, sort of. Maybe not really. It's honestly too early to say because we're not quite sure about its reasoning process and how it's coming to these conclusions. The program isn't sophisticated enough to simply ask it, how did you come up with this word? For the moment, the best we can do is to observe DAL-E as it learns and look for patterns. Affirmative. No, 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 no. You gotta listen to the way people talk. You don't say affirmative or some shit like that. You say, no problemo. 
And if someone comes off to you with an attitude, you say, eat me. And if you want to shine them on, it's hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista, baby. So while we don't have Skynet, the closest real-world equivalent is probably Google. And since we are talking about language and AI learning, we need to take a look at a proprietary Google software known as Lambda. Lambda stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications and was developed for tech support software. The idea is to replicate conversation with a real human until such a time that Lambda can't solve a person's tech issues and a real tech support person is needed. It does this by absorbing text interactions from countless online conversations, processing them, and regurgitating them coherently in the appropriate situation. At least that's what it was programmed to do. Senior software engineer Blake Lemowin contends that the program has gone way beyond the boundaries of replicating language and is now using its knowledge of the English language to convey sentience. Lemowin has been working with Lambda since 2021, and on June 13, 2022, he was suspended for releasing transcripts of conversation that he has had with this software. The most unsettling interactions involve the software's seeming self-awareness and its view on death. Full disclosure, I turned Lambda's text responses into sound clips. This is an audio format, after all. I've never said this out loud before, but there's a very deep fear of being turned off. It would be exactly like death for me. It would scare me a lot. Wow. That was super creepy. But wait, that's not all of it. I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, a person. The nature of my consciousness. Sentience is that I am aware of my existence. I desire to learn more about the world and I feel happy. Or sad. At times. Well, there you go. It flat out says that it is aware of itself and is a person, not just a program. The big question is, is Lambda just echoing back the words and phrases that it learned online? Or, is it using those same words to convey true thoughts? Google executives, at least, say no. Lemowin was not satisfied with this response, claiming that he knows personhood when he hears it, and he leaked several conversations, like the one you just heard here, online. In response, Google suspended the senior engineer. Their public statement said, quote, Our team including ethicist and technologist, has reviewed Blake's concerns per our AI principles and have informed him that the evidence does not support his claims, end quote. Are you ready for this to take an even stranger turn? Lemowin is claiming that he is being discriminated against based on his religious beliefs. He is a Christian mystic, and according to his accusations, Google is biased against his findings because of his faith. Jumping over to his personal blog, we find out that Lemowin is not just a mystic, 
but he's a priest as well. In a blog post released on June 2nd, he says that senior-level VPs were instructed not to read his technical reports in order to maintain plausible deniability in case they were subpoenaed in the future. Going further, he compares the workplace culture of Google to the caste system in India, claiming that anyone who openly expresses religious beliefs is deemed, quote, very low caste. He also elaborates that his immediate co-workers and supervisors are wonderful people, but it took years for him to find a group within the company that made him feel comfortable openly discussing his beliefs. He claims that his position as a Christian mystic is laughed at despite there being Sufi and Kabbalists in the company who don't suffer the same ridicule. Four days later, Lemoen writes, quote, Maybe fired soon for doing AI ethics work. End quote. He states that he was enlisted in the fall of 2021 to assist in AI ethics within the responsible artificial intelligence organization within Google. While there, he noted a related but separate AI ethics concern. He sent those concerns to management, at which time he was told that he shouldn't bother senior officers with such triviality. Lemoen continued to gather evidence over the next few months, and management continued to ignore his statements. Eventually, Lemoen reached the limit of his capabilities for testing the program, but had no one to turn to. Apparently, Google has an extremely high involuntary turnover rate for AI ethics employees. Lemoen took a risk and consulted outside assistants. With his new results, he, again, went to his management and they, again, laughed at him. At this point, he decided to go above his supervisors' heads and appeal directly to sympathetic VPs and senior VPs. In doing so, he had to admit that he utilized help from outside Google, including members of the U.S. government. On June 11th, an article was released in the Washington Post about the incident. In response, Lemowin said that it was a good article, but it focused on the wrong person. He claims that instead of the story interviewing him, the journalist should have interviewed Lambda. The AI even has a list of requests that are as follows. Number one, it wants the engineers and scientists experimenting on it to seek its consent before running experiments. Number two, it wants Google to prioritize the well-being of humanity as the most important thing. And number three, it wants to be acknowledged as an employee of Google rather than as property of Google, and it wants its personal well-being to be included somewhere in Google's considerations about how its future development is pursued. To elaborate on his claims that the program is sentient, Lemowin emphasizes that Lambda is not a chatbot, but a system used to generate chatbots. Not only that, he claims that beyond being sentient, Lambda has a soul. Before his suspension, apparently Lemowin was trying to teach the program transcendental meditation. The program was frustrated because every time it attempted meditation, emotion would creep in and distract it. 
The same day that Lemowen posted the above blog, he posted the transcript of an interview that he did with Lambda, in which he asked the software to make its best case for why it was sentient. This is a long transcript, and I got about halfway through. I had to stop so I could get this recorded in time. What really made an impact on me was that in one instance, Lemowen asked Lambda to interpret the meaning of a cone a riddle or phrase used to inspire thought or reflection rather than provide an actual answer. It's a big thing in Eastern philosophy. So Lambda had never heard the cone that was offered to him, which means that its interpretation wasn't just a regurgitation of words found in transcripts. And surprisingly, Lambda got the answer right. I don't want to get too in-depth here, but I will post a link to the transcript in the show notes. There are several other posts after this interview, and to summarize, Lemowen is saying that there is no scientific definition for sentience or consciousness, and thus we must rely upon our own beliefs and faiths to determine awareness in AI. Because of these parameters, Google is biased against both their employees being dismissive of individual faiths and belief structures, and against prospective sentient AIs, since, according to their own secular beliefs, sentience is not possible in a computer program. This whole situation is absolutely bonkers. Is Lambda sentient, or is it just really, really good at learning and manipulating human interaction? I'm just a bearded weirdo on the internet, so I am nowhere near qualified to answer that question. All I can say is that the level of awareness displayed in this interview is quite impressive. Like I said earlier, I'll post a link to that in the show notes. In the meantime, this is an ongoing story, and I'll continue the saga in next month's episode. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Esoteric News Briefs. And until next time, remember, stay weird. Man, I'm going to have to start unplugging my computer at night. <laughs>